0: Who do you turn to for counsel? Who do you listen to when life gets difficult? We're living in difficult times right now, and all of us need counsel in our lives. Thankfully, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about the importance of wise counsel. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. When I need counsel, I personally have a whole list of people that I turn to, family members, friends, mentors, and each of these people are a trusted counselor who I could rely on when times are tough or when I'm working through a difficult decision I need to make. I hope each one of you has your own list of trusted advisors and counselors. The book of Job in many ways is all about wise counsel. Job shows us the importance of wise counsel. It takes humility to seek out the wisdom and experience of other people. Not many can seek out counsel well, but not all counsel is created equal. We learn in the book of Job that there's a big difference between wise counsel and foolish counsel. And In response to the great tragedy of his life, which we learned about last week, Job seeks the counsel of three friends. Job's three friends give a series of speeches throughout this book. It's the vast majority of the book of Job. Those three friends are Eliphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shulamite, and Zophar, the Naamanite. We don't know much about these three friends or their relationship to Job. What we do know is is that each one of these friends does their best to counsel Job in the face of his tragedy. But more importantly, the counsel offered by Job and his friends teaches us theological truths, truths about who God is and what it means to live wisely in God's world. So what theological truths do Job's friends address? Well, for our purposes tonight, let's think in terms of Two key questions. The first key question Why do people suffer? If you've never studied Job before, perhaps you know that the book of Job has a lot to say about theodicy. This is the word that philosophers and theologians use to talk about the problem of suffering. Job's three friends are each offering a number of common responses to the problem of suffering. But rather than making different arguments, In fact, these three friends are essentially making the same argument in many different ways. Let me just give you a few examples of Job's friends and their arguments about suffering tonight. Here are two notable words of wisdom from Eliphaz, from Job chapter 4. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of His anger they are consumed. And later, from Job chapter 22, If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust, and gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty, and lift up your face to God, and you will make your prayer to him, and he will hear you, and you will pay your vows. Here are two more examples from Bildad. Again, same kind of argument, a little different. If your children have sinned against him, he who has delivered them into the hand of their transgressors, if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore you to rightful habitation." Job chapter 8. And later in Job chapter 18, Bildad says, "'Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light in the dark of his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel, and a snare lays hold of him. And finally, from Zophar, Job chapter 11, if your iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away, and your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning." And then in Job chapter 20, the heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. So what's going on here? What counsel do Job's friends offer him? What is their answer to this key question of why do people suffer? Well, all of their advice throughout this book can be summarized by the term retribution theology. Tremper Longerman is a distinguished professor of Old Testament at Westmont College, and in his commentary on Job, he uh, defines retribution theology this way. Retribution theology is based on the idea that sin leads to suffering, and thus suffering is a sign of sin. It gives the semblance of control. If suffering comes only through sin, then if I do not sin, I will not suffer. For Job's three friends, retribution theology is the answer to his suffering. Job is suffering because clearly he must have done something wrong. He must deserve the treatment he is receiving. And if he wants his life back in order, if he wants to have a good life, well, he better figure out what he did and make it right. Of course, we know from the very beginning of this story that this is wrong. Job did nothing to deserve what happened to him. In retribution, theology seems reasonable. It seems wise, but it is ultimately a foolish answer to the question of suffering. Retribution theology is foolishness, and yet retribution theology is all around us. There are many historical And contemporary examples of this thinking in our world. Perhaps the most historically prominent example of retribution theology comes from Buddhism. Karma is a Sanskrit word meaning action or fate. In Buddhism, karma is shorthand for the principle of cause and effect. A karmic universe is a universe that is structured in such a way that do good things and good things will come your way. Conversely, if you do bad things, then bad things will come to you. There are lots of people, even some Christians, who believe in karma. One example of a famous person who believes in karma is Keanu Reeves, the famous actor. Here's what he says about karma. The recognition of the law of cause and effect, also known as karma, is a fundamental key to understand how you've created your world actions of your body, speech, and mind. When you truly understand karma, then you realize you are responsible for everything in your life. It's incredibly empowering to know that your future is in your hands. The internet is full of videos showing people who get instant karma, people who get what they deserve. Why do we watch these videos? Why do the sentiments of people like Kiana Reeves make sense to us? Well, because the idea of karma makes us feel good. It fools us into thinking that we are better and smarter than the people who suffer. If someone is suffering, well, they must have brought it on themselves. Retribution theology is also sadly prevalent in the church today. And the most obvious example of it comes from the prosperity gospel. Just take a few of these examples from two of the most famous prosperity gospel preachers today. This first one comes from Joel Olstein. It's God's will for you to live in prosperity instead of poverty. It's God's will for you to pay your bills and to not be in debt. The implication here, of course, is that if you are in poverty or if you are in debt, then you are not in God's will. You must have done something to deserve it. That is textbook retribution theology. Here's another example from Creflo Dollar, a very famous prosperity gospel preacher. Whatever role you're in, Jesus is with you and wants to make you a success. Now, again, that seems wise. It seems like it makes sense. But the implication is that if you are not experiencing success, then you are not with Jesus. You must lack faith. The prosperity gospel is... a uh, great example of the way retribution theology is at work in the church today. Lots of Christians believe this is what the gospel actually says. Dr. Kate Bowler is a historian of American Christianity and an expert in the prosperity gospel. In one of her books, this is what she says about the prosperity gospel and why it's so popular. The prosperity gospel encourages people to buy private jets and multi-million dollar homes as evidence of God's love. But I also saw the desire for escape. Believers wanted escape from poverty, failing health, and the feeling that their lives were leaky buckets. Some people wanted Bentleys, but more wanted relief from their wounds of the past and pain from their present. The prosperity gospel looks at the world as it is and promises a solution. It guarantees that faith will always make a way. The book of Job decidedly rejects retributive theology. We don't live in a karmic universe. We don't believe in the prosperity gospel. These are not faithful responses to suffering. And Job is not uh, offered wise counsel by his friends. Job famously comes to this conclusion himself in chapter 28 in what some commentators call a moment of clarity amidst his pain. Because God is the creator of all things, Job realizes that true wisdom belongs to God and is beyond our understanding. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from the birds of the air. God understands the way to it. He knows its place. He looks at the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for lightning of thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. He said to man, behold the fear of the Lord that is wisdom and to turn away from evil. understanding. Job realizes that there are two main problems with retribution theology. The first problem is that sin is not the only cause of suffering. Jesus makes this very clear in John chapter 9. He has a debate with the scribes and Pharisees that they ask uh, about a blind man, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus responds by saying, neither, so that the works of God might be revealed in him. The truth is that the causes of suffering are often a mystery to us. Sometimes it's caused by sin, but sometimes it's caused by a random chance. We cannot equate sin equally with suffering because sin is not the only cause of suffering. But secondly, and more importantly, God is sovereign over fate. At the core of retribution theology is this belief in fate. Fate is the idea that your actions are determined, uh, determine your destiny, that whatever you do will lead to your future. Christians don't believe in fate. We believe that our destiny is determined by the free love of God. Our lives aren't determined by the actions that we make, but by the loving action of God. God is sovereign over fate. And that means that retribution theology is foolishness. Like Job, Saint Paul also affirms that God is the sovereign creator. Yet Saint Paul understands that the fullness of the creator's God is manifest in Jesus. In Colossians chapter one, verse 16, Paul says, for by him, Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, authorities or rulers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Friends, this is good news for us. Jesus not only created all things, but he also brings things to their completion. We don't believe in fate because we believe in Jesus, the Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end. And this faith in Jesus gives us confidence and hope that he can take our suffering and use it for his good purposes. As Paul says again in Romans, all things work together for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. So then, why does retribution theology persist? If it's a foolish answer to the problem of suffering, why do we keep bringing it up? Why do we keep using it in our lives and going towards it when times are tough? Well, this brings us to the second theological question posed by the book of Job. How do we read scripture in light of suffering? Indeed, friends, I think this is the more important question posed by Job's three friends. Throughout their discourses, Job's three friends are quoting from or alluding to scripture. The most obvious example is Deuteronomy 28, the famous blessing and cursing passage. Let me read it for you. Moses speaks to the people, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command to you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Now, if we read Deuteronomy 28 at face value, It seems that Moses is teaching retributive theology. However, this interpretation completely takes the passage out of its context. Deuteronomy 28 is the very end of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And Moses is speaking to Israel, God's covenant people. He's telling them uh, what is required of them to be a covenant people. The blessings and curses are not connected to some karmic principle or some sense of prosperity. They're connected to Israel's obedience to the covenant. They're not general pronouncements about how the world works. So why is this important? Well, it brings us back to Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, Job's friends who are offering him foolish counsel. They're offering foolish counsel because they're reading scripture poorly. And their main mistake is proof texting. Proof texting is when someone uses a text in order to justify an opinion or a decision. Rather than allowing scripture to shape our thinking, a proof texter will use scripture as a tool in their argument. Sadly, proof texting is all too common in the church. But the truth is that proof texting scripture is foolishness. This is not a wise way to read scripture. We see it all the time in our politics. Many Christians have taken positions on political issues, and then they use the Bible to justify their positions after the fact. They may claim that their voting is biblical, but the truth is, it's proof texting. It doesn't change the fact that proof texting is a foolish way to read scripture in light of suffering. I love what uh, the famous biblical scholar D.A. Carson said about proof texting. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Job's three friends need to read scripture in context. If they don't, they're at grave risk of misunderstanding what it means and also giving good answers to Job in light of his suffering. One of my favorite examples of proof texting comes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter three. You'll remember that at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus spends 40 days in the desert where he's tempted by Satan. And during that interchange, uh, there's three main temptations that the devil offers to Jesus. Let's look at them together. Matthew chapter four says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourselves down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and... On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Did you catch that? Let's look at it again. The devil is citing Psalm 91 in an argument with Jesus. Even the devil is proof texting scripture. That means we probably shouldn't proof text scripture. So then, back to our second key question. How should we read Scripture well and wisely in light of suffering? What does it mean to read Scripture wisely? Well, I want to close by offering to you what I call my three C's of reading Scripture. I hope these kind of guide you as you encounter suffering in your own life and suffering in the world and seek to learn from Scripture how to respond. The first C is that we must read scripture canonically. By canonically, I mean that we must read scripture within the entire canon of scripture, the entire story from the Old Testament in the beginning of Genesis to the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation. Whenever we encounter suffering, we must remember to read particular verses of scripture in light of this canon, this huge story. Retributive theology, is not the story of Scripture. The Biblical story is about a loving Creator who is seeking to reconcile His people and restore His beloved creatures to Him. So when we encounter suffering, we must remember the words of Saint John that God is light and love. He's the enemy of darkness and sin. In Him, there is no darkness. He has not promised to spare us from suffering but he has promised to be with us through it. Indeed, that's the experience of Job over these 42 chapters. Job suffers greatly, but God does not abandon Job. The second C is Christologically. We must read scripture canonically and Christologically. As Christians, we must remember that Christ is at the very heart of the scriptural story. God has manifest his love and his care for us in the suffering presence of Christ. In Christ, God is not only present to our suffering. In Christ, God suffers for us and with us. And that is why the cross is such a comfort for us Christians. That's why the cross is all over our sanctuary. In fact, our sanctuary is shaped like a cross. Because by keeping the suffering of Jesus before our minds and his cross, we have a better understanding of how God is using the suffering in our lives for his good and glory. Our salvation is not in karma or the promises of prosperity. Our salvation is in Jesus of Nazareth, Israel's suffering servant. And so we read the Bible Christologically. Finally, we should read the Bible carefully. Too often, we use scripture like a tool in our arguments, but the careful reader trusts in the authority of scripture. If we truly believe that holy scriptures are the inspired word of God, God's word written, as the articles say, then we must read scripture by carefully trusting in its authority. Careful readers trust in the authority of scripture. Careful readers are also humble. They know that they don't know all the answers. They trust in God's wisdom and leave room for the mysteries of life. One of those mysteries being that first key question, why do people suffer? Finally, careful readers are expectant. They know that God speaks through Holy Scripture and they are prepared to prayerfully listen to God's word in Scripture. I am thankful for Job's three friends. Even though they give pretty bad answers to these key questions, they did their best to offer counsel to a friend in need, and all of us should follow their example. But unlike Job's friends, we should seek to offer wise counsel. And this story of Job and his three friends has taught us a lot about what foolish counsel looks like and therefore helps us to offer wise counsel. Council that is uh, takes Scripture seriously, that reads it canonically, christologically, and carefully.